Welcome, Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. And today I have probably my most anticipated guest for a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons. Um, I've always wanted to meet Johnny Crowder. I've been following his story, uh, really look up to him as a mentor in not just the startup space, but in the mental health ad advocacy space. I'm, I'm, I'm six years into this journey, Johnny, and um, I've been following you and you and I've talked many times through electronic means, but we've never had a chance to actually talk face to face. So man, I'm honored to be in your presence. And I know that people watching this show are going to walk away with a handful of nuggets to improve their mental wellness, right? Dude, I first appreciate the kind words. And second, I love that people listening are actually going to hear our first real conversation. Like there's something very beautiful and organic about that. This is not like the third try of a rehearsed conversation. This is like nope. really us finally meeting after years of dancing around each other. And I took a lot of notes. So this is my outline for today. So basically nothing. <laughs> um, I just, I like the podcast world just because we can be authentic and genuine. I've been guests on shows. I'm sure you have too, Johnny, where it's scripted. Yeah. And they ask you like set up questions and maybe sometimes even they'll send you stuff prior and it's like, that's okay. I get it. I kind of like just seeing where this is going to go. Uh, I do want to spend some time, a lot of time on your main passion and that's mental health. Um, let's talk about you're in Tampa and um, let's talk about what got you into mental health. Where does your why come from? You had lots of different, I mean, obviously you're a talented musician. We're going to talk a little bit about your singing career and your, your band prison's great. I've, I've listened to it right after I initially met you, I went and listened to some of your songs. I'm like, man, this is right down my alley. Oh, I love <laughs> Cause I want to, I want to talk about some metal today too, but, um, so why mental health? So I want to be clear that I didn't, I don't feel like, uh, you know, Tupac's stomach tattoo mm -hmm. and it says thug life and he says i didn't yep. choose the thug life the thug life chose me that's how i feel yep. about mental health like i was not um seven going one day i'll work in behavioral health like i <laughs> you're thinking i'm gonna be a singer in a metal band totally. when you're seven totally yeah. i had no um so i i want to be very transparent about that because i think a lot of people who become accomplished in a field kind of own this narrative that like, Oh yeah, I always knew. Um, I didn't know that. And also before I really struggled with mental health to the point where I needed treatment, like intense treatment, yeah. I really had no interest in talking about mental health, like almost to the point where I had an aversion to where if you would bring up the word depression, I would find a reason to go to the bathroom. Like I literally didn't want to be in the same room as that. So the short version is I grew up with severe mental illness. Um, I'll spare you details, but very severe, um, unable to, to complete basic tasks um, and needing to be watched so that I would not harm myself. Um, I was delusional. So I would be hallucinating and experiencing a version of reality that other people were not. And I think every myself and everybody around me was kind of hoping that that was just a phase that it would kind of, yeah, he's young and oh yeah, he's a teenager. He's angsty and hopefully, but it just never, it, I never snapped out of it. So the accelerated version now that I've given you a backdrop is started treatment in high school because I couldn't not 
It was just too debilitating. Uh, I took two years of college level psychology in high school because I was like, I, if this doesn't tell you how control oriented I was, I was like, I'm going to figure out what's wrong with my brain and I'm going to fix it. I love it. And then I went to UCF and got a psychology degree, which is right there. And then um, I spent years working with mental health organizations, doing public advocacy and peer support. Um, I earned my CRPS, which is right there. And Mm -hmm. I got really involved in not only understanding how the brain works on the neuroscience side, but also understanding how we can communicate with one another in a way that fosters healthier mental and emotional patterns. So long story short, hurt when I was younger, uh, it became so intrusive that I dedicated all of my time and energy to learning about why that was happening and how I could change it. And then now I get to run an organization that helps people change their lives uh, in the same way that I changed mine. It's, it's beautiful, man. I mean, it's, it's embodies a phrase I like to tell, especially our, my younger kids that I work with, lean into it to learn from it, lean into it to learn from it. So instead of leaning away from pain and suffering, whatever we're going through, uh, as the Stoics would always say, you know, there, there's a lesson. Do things happen to you or do things happen for you? That's a, that's a way I phrase things for kids. And so this leaning into it is exactly what you did. Now, did your, did your issue stem from some unresolved childhood trauma that you had, or was it just, you had a difficult time with transitioning from being a child to a teenager uh, you don't have to be real specific if it was a trauma event, but I'm, I'm always curious on kind of where the genesis of these things come from. Yeah. So first I would have a Nobel prize hanging above me instead of a guitar. If I actually knew the real answer to that. Um, okay. but I will say that, um, there's definitely a genetic component. So there's uh, okay. mental illness and addiction in my family tree. And also I was abused uh, throughout my childhood into my young adulthood. So I, I would be remiss to think that those are unrelated, that they just happened. Those two things happened to have happened next to each other. I think Sure, there's definitely a biological component. There's definitely an environmental component. And then a lot of it, I think was because I didn't do a lot of leaning in. So when I was younger and struggling with symptoms, I didn't take the time to think, Hmm, what can I do to learn from this? Right? Like I was punching holes in walls and hallucinating demons. Mm. Like I didn't, it was almost like I didn't have the luxury to stop and think critically and take a breath because I was always in, um, I was always in defense mode. So I was always trying to protect myself. Were you numbing this with drugs and alcohol at this time? So what's really interesting whenever people read about me online or they um, introduce me at an event or something, they will always, and I'm not saying that you're doing this. I'm saying mm-hmm. that right. almost everybody thinks that I am in recovery for addiction. And I, this always blows people's minds. I've never used drugs or alcohol in my entire life and I never will. Interesting. But it's exactly because I grew up around drugs and alcohol. I saw right. how it tears families apart and leads to destructive behaviors and has literally killed people that I care about. So right. it it's weird because I'm so extraordinarily passionate about sobriety and um, mm. I am in recovery for severe mental illness, which is so right. akin to being in recovery yep. for addiction. But 
people are surprised when they learn, but you're so passionate about sobriety and you've never used yeah. drugs or alcohol. And I tell them, yeah, do you think that the, the founder of mothers against drunk driving mad, do you think that she used to drunk drive? Right. No, she's yep. so passionate right. because she saw it affect someone she loves. I'm guilty as charged, brother. I assume that you've been in rehab facilities and, mm -hmm. you know, I just, uh, that was just, a, a, an assumption, a stigma, let's just say, uh, I've never done drugs myself. Um, so you and I are, are rare air. Yeah. You're 56, never done drugs. Now amazing. I grew up now as an alcoholic for 32 years, mm -hmm. full blown and a compulsive gambler. Wow. And I have attention. Yeah. For 30 something years, uh, for at least 20, I had a very serious gambling addiction and, you know, in the investment business, running an investment firm, talking about gambling was a no-no. So I never talked about it until I got out of that career. Now I talk about it. I wrote about it in my book wow. because it's important to know that, you know, when people look at somebody that is supposed to be the pillar of success or the, the, um, the epitome of, of everything that people thought that I was, I had a lot of issues that weren't known. And one of them, but drinking was known. I think most of my friends knew I was an alcoholic. I was a functional alcoholic, but the gambling thing was just very insidious and very, um, very. So I, I knew Johnny that if I got, if I took drugs, my problem isn't, I wasn't like afraid of them. I knew I'd want to do all of them. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do just one. I'd want to do them all. And that's how I was when I walked in the casino, I had a thousand dollars. I wanted to win all the money in the casino. I could, I could triple my money in the first hour and it wasn't enough. I'd always have to stay and I'd always walk out with my credit card maxed out or whatever. Wow. And so for me, drugs, drugs, I knew, I guess if the, if there's any part of me that's smart, which isn't much, um, I, I realized that, that if I did drugs, I, I would be dead. Now alcohol, I just, for some reason, it was more accept acceptable in society. Um, I didn't grow up with alcoholic parents, mm -hmm. my mom and dad. I've never seen my mom ever drink. And my dad, I've never seen him drunk. I don't think it is in my family history. So I think as a competitor, you know, when I got out of sports, I had some injuries. I think I, the drinking and the gambling for a, a young male, uh, and I talk about this a lot. One of my last radio shows I had was on gambling addiction. 6% mm. uh, of college kids right now have a, have a, have a serious gambling addiction. So it's a big problem with uh, cell phones and gambling. But, um, you know, going back to the original point I was talking about, about trying to figure out where some of these issues come from, uh, you know, is it a waste of time to try to go down that rabbit hole uh, and, and say, well, where does all this come from? Because if you do find the answer, I mean, how's that going to benefit you? And I've, I've had this conversation with some psychologists. It's like, you know, just kind of put that in a box. Don't go down that road anymore. Let's focus on what's ahead of us. And let's not go back in time and resurrect these demons that most of us can't get past. Yeah. I was talking to, so earlier today was my, our, we have a new software engineer at Cope notes and it was his 90 day review today. And we mm -hmm. were talking about what it means to be solution minded. So he's, he's outstanding at that. So we were sort of bringing up, this is a skill set that we've noticed in you that you're very solution oriented and the balance there is not that you ignore the problem or that you ignore the source of the problem, but that you leverage your knowledge of the problem and its source to position yourself for a solution that prevents that in the future. So right. I think that it is, I don't, I personally don't think that it's a waste of time to dedicate mental and emotional energy to figuring out 
what factors contributed to that um, period of increased um, symptom severity in your life, let's say, only to the point that you can use what you've learned through that digging to prevent future pain. Anything past that is like pouring gasoline out of the gas tank of your car. It's, it's that there's a lot of business metaphors that come to mind or, or, uh, phrases I like, but, um, you know, failing forward, that type of mindset, you know, it's like, you know, it, I used to tell my son when he's, my son's a college golfer out at South Dakota. And when he has a bad round, he would like to spend all of his time on the bad shots, you know, and focus on the negative things that we're kind of wired as human beings to do, you know? And I said, you know, it's only a bad round if you don't learn something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's only a bad, whatever you want to put in there, if you don't learn something. So, and that's for kids, I think important because we are, we are predisposed with getting captured in thought. And unfortunately, the majority of the time we're captured in thought, they're negative thoughts or they're self-doubt thoughts. And that's, that's all of us. Um, that's just what makes us human. It doesn't make you abnormal. It doesn't make you have a mental illness. It makes you human. And that's one of the things I think with kids specifically, we need to let them know that, Hey, you know what? You didn't invent any of this stuff. Matter of fact, everybody you talk to has these same thoughts. Yeah. The difference is we don't want to activate the negative thoughts. We want to observe them, be attentive to them and watch them die. Just like that whole concept of being impermanent. It's like, you know, thoughts come from nowhere and they go nowhere. They just, they just go right by you. And so I, I like to do that with my meditation. It's helped me a ton uh, in just understanding how thoughts can really be an, it be an advantage to your well-being, not a disadvantage. Because we spend just far too much time worked up on things that nine times out of 10 never happen. Yeah, I, I'm writing a sales playbook right now for Cope Notes. And in the sales philosophy section, like how we... Um, how we approach and experience and learn from failure and rejection. There's a part in there that says, we do not rehearse negative outcomes, mm-hmm. which means you, you will fail. Certainly right. guaranteed. There's no salesperson in the history of sales that's going to go 700 and 0 was their batting average, right? Like you are going to lose some sales and there's no sense in rehearsing what went wrong or what could go wrong. Learning from it a hundred percent. But I think where we get in trouble is not the, the review sort of the retrospective of man, what could I do differently next time? It's the after doing that, doing it again. And again, right. and again, right. that's where we get in trouble. And maybe it was somebody on a comment that you had posted something said, you know, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you never take. And, um, that is so true. I mean, you just, you got to take shots. You got to take chances. Um, uh, in the last month I've submitted about five different proposals to be involved in mental health conferences, uh, around the country. Um, you know, I don't have the street cred that you have in regards to, you have a cope notes and all that. I have my podcast and the tour we did and things like that. Um, and you know, I, we got no's on all, all three of them or five of them. And, and my assistant would forward it to me and I'd say, okay, we're just closer to a yes. Just keep sending those out. Just keep. So 
my mindset in 33 years of selling, you know, I started in life insurance sales, dude. I mean, talk about the hardest thing to sell. You know, if you can sell life insurance, you can sell anything. So, um, so for me, it's just persistency and it goes back to this living undeterred kind of mindset that when I picked that brand, you know, that word undeterred wasn't being used because it's, I still have to spell check it occasionally and it's a hard, it's clunky. It doesn't roll off your tongue, like mental toughness or resiliency, you know, it's undeterred. It just kind of chugs out of your mouth. And I added living in front of it and I thought, wow, that's, I'm pretty certain I don't have to look up on uh, trademarks, but no one's using those two words together. And so we did, we trademarked it and went with it. And to me, it's just kind of validates that resiliency that so many, you know, life coaches and public, you know, uh, keynote speakers talk about being resilient. Um, and I have three pillars of being living undeterred. If you're curious, uh, the first one are expectations, having realistic expectations. And the one I use in my, my talks is death is we all know we're going to die. We have this unrealistic expectation that it's going to happen in some, some correct order, like great grandpa, grandpa, mom, and dad, my wife, never my kids. And then maybe my pet somewhere in between, but it doesn't work out that way. Um, and and we think it's always going to happen to somebody else. And so death's a great example of unrealistic expectations. Um, and having a healthy relationship with death will give you a better respect in being in awe with life. Um, that's one of the, the examples I like to use. We don't talk about death enough with kids. We just don't. And then when somebody in their family dies, uh, they're devastated. And sometimes sometimes it can, it can be their unwinding. It can be their, their demise. The second one is preparation. So how much are you preparing? And I'm sure you're very diligent in this in your daily prep. And then the last one was evolution. And you talked a little bit about this, about kind of absorbing trauma and just things that happened in your life. Make it part of your story. Don't try to disconnect from it. You know, my son died from fentanyl, dude. It's part of my story. He's not, he's not coming back. It sucks. I cry every freaking day. He would have been 29 this year. His, uh, his daughter was born three weeks after he died, Johnny. And Whoa. yeah. And, um, her name is Brighton. And every time I see her, I say, Brighton, you brighten my life, you know? And I always say to her, you're like, where's your daddy? Where's your daddy? And she's in my heart, you know? So we talk about him in the present, like, like he's here. And so again, it's like, I don't know where I went off with that. I just felt like I had to share her story, but I'm real, I'm real, just, I'm in learning mode. And I'm, I'm in learning mode. So when I follow people like you and all the other advocates out there, it's like, what can I learn from Johnny Crowder to become a better mental health advocate myself? Um, what are some things you do daily that keeps you from, you know, from the, from the ledge? Well, I commonly say that wellness is a full-time job. So I spend I agree with that. a lot of time doing things that are oriented around wellness, probably more time than other people spend doing anything else. So I think it's because wellness is something that touches every corner of your life. So there is a way to listen to music that leverages it for wellness. There's a way to cook that leverages it for wellness. There's a way to exercise, a way to communicate with friends, a way to work that you can accomplished through a wellness lens. So technically everything in my life is centering around 
how do I keep myself healthy? So maintaining the progress right. that I've made thus far and take one more step in the right direction each day. And I'm not claiming that my progress has been linear. It has not, but right. I am saying that I think a big mistake we make around wellness is we put it in a box and we say, well, do you do yoga? Hmm. Or, and that's kind of where we start instead of right. like, Johnny, when you put on your deodorant in the morning, do you put on a different amount of deodorant under each arm? Because you know that in doing so, you are challenging your OCD and you are letting those intrusive thoughts know <laughs> that you are right. in charge and you will not bow right. to them. So everything I do is centered around trying to maintain and compound the progress that I've already made. But right. some things that I that I cling to regularly are I fiercely guard my sleep. I make yeah. very, very few exceptions to stay up past, I'd say 11 or right. midnight. It has to be the last time I did it. I had some friends in town from Australia. They were in town for one day. I hadn't seen them in years. And I stayed up until 4 a.m. talking to them. Yeah, sure. And there are moments yeah. like that where I make exceptions. But the things that I really fiercely guard are I exercise for an hour almost every single day. And I do my absolute best to sleep. And the third thing is I took a look at all these small things in my life that I previously didn't leverage for wellness, like putting on deodorant. And I think, how can I do, if I have to do this every day anyway, how can I do this in a way that is going to protect and build upon the progress that I've already made in my wellness? Hmm. I love it, man. I love it because in a way I've, talk to my boys about this because, you know, it's like dieting doesn't work, you know, trying to make these big major change, losing, you know, if your goal is losing 50 pounds, that's not going to work. Um, so for me, my little trick is like you said, with the deodorant, I break it down into every little tiny thing I do. Like if I'm going to buy kombucha at the store, well, I'll look at both kombuchas. I'll take the one with the less added sugar. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one good decision I made right there. I drink non-alcoholic beer. So I look at the two non and which one has lower calories. I'll take the lower one. So it's like, I do that a hundred times in a day Yeah. or I'll get a salad at the store. That's pre-made. I'll take the cheese out. I won't put the cheese, just nothing major, Johnny, nothing earth shattering, but you do that 20, 30, 40 times a day. You don't need a goal to lose 50 pounds. You, you don't need those goals. You can, you can do little tiny things each day on each activity. The little things add up to the big things. And that can be, the counter too. the little things you do that are destructive can add up to the big destructive things. You know, the kid who tries vaping for the first time that says, Oh, it's just a little, it's just vaping. Yeah. You know what? I'm sure if I unwound my son, Seth's death in a hotel room with a needle laced with fentanyl and I went to the first decision he made, I'll guarantee you, he said the same thing. Matter of fact, I know he did. Cause I was there. I was his dad. I remember having conversations that marijuana is not a big deal. Everybody does it. And then I went to his funeral six years later. So don't tell me your little choices can't add up to be big consequences. They can. And so, you know, um, but I like that mindset that you have about trying to make these little adjustments, you know, especially things for the positive. Yeah, I think a misconception that we have is um, 
little things don't matter and the big things matter the most. And I heard this awesome point from, uh, it was actually Tim Keller. It was during a sermon and he, he's a pastor in New York. And he said something along the lines of most people think that their personality, like their default mode, who they are on a day-to-day basis is made up by these huge pivotal landmark events in their life. Like, oh yes. Correct. Um, when yep. I had to move to Florida, that's, that was a huge right. shift for me. And he said, you know, even if, if you take that, if you take the big moves, uh, getting laid off or losing family members or getting a leg amputated, all of these huge things that you take in your entire life, the big landmark moments, he said, if you have an extremely exciting action packed life, you're going to have a dozen. Mm over the course of a hundred years. Like these, these things don't really happen all that often. However, he said the big misconception is people think those big things shape how we are in our day to day. And he said, false, the 60 to 80,000 daily decisions that you make, the micro decisions, the micro interactions you have when you put on your socks or when you park your car, all of those tiny little things actually do much more to compound your personality that then determine how you face those big landmark events. So he was like, so many people focus on these huge things and say, those are the chapters of my life. And he was, I think his point was, they may be markers where you look back in your life and maybe you don't remember that time you parked your car or washed your laundry. Right. Um, So you use these things as landmarks when you look back at your life, but those were not the determinants of who you are in the same way that uh, a good morning to a cashier or a deciding to run, even if it was drizzling outside, those things, Mm -hmm. how much more those shape who you actually are. Good examples, making your bed. It's non-negotiable for me. Um, I heard some Navy general, or I don't, I don't know the terminology, some big, maybe you know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Do you see his podcast too? And his whole thing was based on, it's so something simple, you know, it's like a big Ted talk was based on making your bed. Dude. And it, it sets the, ter- it sets the tone for everything. You want to know something weird about me? And this always blows people's minds whenever I have friends over. So my apartment is very neat. Everything is, it's mise en place. Like everything is where it's supposed to be. I, the one thing I don't do is I don't make my bed. And wow, is, I would not have picked. See, I thought you were in rehab for, for a couple of times. And I thought you always made your bed. Did, <laughs> I'm over two. I actually <laughs> don't make my bed on purpose because of OCD. So same reason why I put a different oh, okay. amount of deodorant under each arm. Right. To kind of trick myself. I also, right. I did it. Uh, I started it last year because I experienced a, um, a family emergency. And Mm. I noticed myself clinging to control again as a way to cope with that. And I thought, no, I know you want to make that bed, but you leave it. You leave that bed the way it is. And you walk out of this room and you start your day knowing full well that that bed is not made and you have to make peace with that. (laughs) And so now it's sort of a symbol to me that even though the rest of my apartment is very put together, it's my one thing that I sort of give to myself to challenge man dude we're so much alike we are so much i have a bottle of red wine next to my bed for my challenge whoa yeah it's a bottle of came my dog's name is camus by the way it's my favorite cabernet it's a 250 dollar bottle of of camus and it's next to my bed 
and I, I've not had a drink for five years and wow. I'll go out for, I'll go out for dinner for restaurants by myself. I'm, I'm widowed. So I go on a lot of alone dates mm -hmm. right now by myself and I'll order a glass of wine and, um, the waiter will come over. He'll do, do his thing. I'll get the most expensive glass I can Jeez. get. And, um, yeah, it's funny, man. I, I do this just to F with people and he'll come over at the end and say, well, how was your meal? And I'll say, I was really good. Then he'll say, well, I have to ask, you know, how was your wine? And I just look up to him. I say, I don't drink, man. <laughs> and that's it. That's it. And I can see him going back going, I just, the weirdest dude out there ordered this $25 glass of, you know, Pinot Grigio, yes. not Grigio, but uh, Pinot. And now, uh, anyway, he doesn't drink. And so to me, it stimulates them wondering why, what's the story behind this guy? Yeah. It creates that, that, it creates that narrative that, Hey, you know, that's a pretty cool deal. And I'm sure they repeat that with other people. And so, um, I got in the habit of doing that, you know, about a couple times a year, just kind of spontaneously. Um, that's I don't want to waste good wine. So, <laughs> um, let me ask you something. I got one thing I want to go to, but I want to ask you something first and get your thoughts on this. So I'm really interested in alternative methods to mental health. Um, it seems that we're kind of stuck in the, you know, in the, um, the medieval days when it comes to mental health and, and, um, we just keep inventing more labels and, and more data, putting kids in more boxes and Gen Z specifically is the most depressed, anxious gen generation of all time. And so when I did our tour this summer, I ran into an organization out in Nevada in uh, Reno that does a lot with uh, what's called MERT technology, similar to TMS, it's brainwave technology. So that was one area of alternative mental health uh, work that I was really piqued and interested in. And then the one that's just really been out there and you know where I'm going probably, psychedelic research. It's like, I'm always curious on people who, you know, you and I both have never done drugs, so we don't, we can't really comment from expertise, from uh, experience, but what's your thoughts on some of the research that it was out there in the seventies and then the war on drugs just, just basically destroyed all that really good, valuable data we had, but there's kind of a Renaissance. There's a lot of really big billionaire people putting a lot of money into this. Um, there's a lot of a lot of really well-respected people I follow on social media that think that psychedelics, not just for mental health, but for Alzheimer's, attention deficit, OCD, sleep disorders, trauma, you know, I just thought I'd throw it out today and see what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So I will start by saying I'm wrong all the time. I'm wrong every single day. It is a trend that I don't see stopping anytime soon. So I'm, I'm always learning I make false predictions all the time. So I'll start by saying that. I'll also start by saying that I may have letters after my name, but I'm not a doctor. So I'll make that very clear. Um, I, I view, so I have a bias against mm -hmm. drugs and alcohol that I will acknowledge, but I also understand that science is always changing and we're always learning about things that we didn't know before. And I think that there's a chance, I will honor the possibility that something like psychedelics is kind of like, picture mercury, for example, like in a thermometer. Sure. If before we put mercury in thermometers, people tried eating it hmm. and they died from it, and right. then 40 years later, someone said, hey, remember that stuff that killed all those people? What if we put it inside of thermometers? People would say, absolutely not. You, what, it's the worst idea ever because right. 
not because of what mercury is, but because we misused mercury. Sure. I think that there's a chance me not being inside of that field at all. I think there's a yeah. chance that the substances that you and I associate with drugs and alcohol used mm. in a different way could mm. be therapeutic. And the reason why we have these biases is because these substances have been used in non-therapeutic ways before. Mm. And we right. think of that substance and we think, well, that's in a category of substances that we would not consider safe for consumption or smart right. to consume. And I wonder if there's a part of science that goes, maybe people were using it wrong and that's what we're trying to figure yeah. out. I don't know. And the impact on the young brains, you know, with the prefrontal cortex, you know, supposedly 25, 26, you know, um, the, the effects of say, even just cannabis on you and I versus a 15 year old on the brain is just, you know, night and day. Um, psychedelics can be um, and are the same thing, uh, I would assume. Um, again, you and I are very similar in that is I don't have any medical background. I don't have I've never experienced um, any of these things. So, um, but having buried two people I care about deep, deeply, mm -hmm. I, I wonder if these things were out there, if this is a, a road we could have entertained where they at least could have been alive. You know, you can't, you can't put a dead person in recovery. You, you know, you can't, you, yeah. that's that that's where harm reduction becomes very, 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 um, polarizing in, in society because there's those that are all for it. And typically they're the ones that have, you know, a lot of them that have lost or been in recovery themselves. Um, I'm at the mind right now that when I was doing our tour this summer, Johnny, the statistic I used was 800 Americans a day died from the diseases of despair, overdose, suicide, and alcohol. So 800 a day. Okay. In the wow. United States, that's dying. And again, we get hung up on death numbers all the time, but think of the families that are destroyed and decimated by death, not even entering their house yet. You know, we had five, five and a half years of, of destruction before Seth passed. So you don't have to have, to have death come in to have complete devastation in a family. Yeah. Quite the contrary. There's more families that don't that do. There's millions that don't have death coming in every day. Um, so anyway, um, I'm just not sure I went off on that. This is the beauty of, of attention deficit is sometimes I get going on something. I don't remember where I was. So if you want to remind me where I was going with that, I'd be great. But uh, no, so it's like, I just, um, it's all hands on deck. I think, oh, no, I was going to say. So someone reminded me the other day, they said, you know, Jeff, that 800 number you've been using, it's 825 a day now. 825 Americans a day died by overdose, suicide, and alcohol. When are we going to draw a line in the sand, Johnny? When are we going to say enough's enough? I and mean, when are we going to step up and say, you know, we need to start crushing these numbers, you know, not just saving lives, but crushing the number instead of next year, you and I talking and it's 950 a day, you know? Yeah. I read this article this week, actually might've been yesterday about this big mental health company, MindStrong that. I mean, they were, yeah, titan. they had raised hundred over a yep. hundred million dollars yep. and they're closing their doors. I read about and that. And the article, and this is not uncommon, by the way, like behavioral right. health tech startups are failing, like right. in large part because the unit economics of what they're offering are not supported by the greater system of care that basically the, the point the article was making was 
we live in a country where we say mental health is important, but then yeah. we're not willing to put our money where our mouth is and actually pay for these things. And I can't count how many people have said, have, have asked me at a speaking gig, they say, what has helped you in your recovery? And I very regularly say, therapy has helped me. Medication mm -hmm. has helped me. Prayer has helped me. Journaling right. has helped me. Reading has helped me. All of these things, peer support groups. And there's always a retort. And I used to be that person who you say medication. I say, oh, I don't know if I trust big pharma. And then yeah. you, I, you say therapy. And I say, oh, I don't know if I trust clinicians. And then I say journaling. Mm -hmm. And I say, oh, I don't know if I want to spend my time that way. The fact is you can say it's important to get ahead of addiction or to to prevent severe mental health conditions or prevent suicide. But until the country as a whole is willing to put half as much money as we put into buying Fendi purses and, yeah. and eating Which isn't gonna happen. steakhouse, if we yeah. did half, half, yeah. half, if we spent one-tenth of what we spend on streaming services like Hulu or yeah. any of that stuff, we take any yeah. of the things that we pay for no problem. Right. And we shaved off a fraction of that and put it towards behavioral health. I think we could make that difference. The problem is, I think for a long time, especially in advocacy, so I've been doing advocacy for 12 years. So I have seen the conversation wow. grow and change. And yeah. I think where we are right now as a country is there's a lot of back padding for like, yeah, we're doing a good job of making sure mental health is trending on Twitter. But that doesn't actually do anything functional. Really, Correct. advocacy is just a way to drum up awareness to make a change. But if we don't make the change, as in making yeah. services available or shortening wait right. times or lowering yep. care costs or whatever, then all it is is a lot of people talking about a problem, which I think is right. where we are, where the United States is right now, is now everybody's talking about it. And then we say, great, now make funding available for these resources right. so that we can access them. And then all of a sudden people go, whoa, slow your roll. That was kind of the idea with the opioid settlement, but we're not seeing that actually come to fruition just yet. So um, depending on what, you know, what you're looking at in regards to where the money's being spent, but it goes back to kind of the um, decision I made back. I'm, I'm only six years in this, so you're, you're ahead of me in the mental health advocacy space. Uh, where, you know, it'd be easy for me to be that angry dad, right. To be a, I, I call him a fentanyl parent, you know, out there protesting in DC and going after, you know, drug cartels and, and the precursor chemicals in China. And, 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 you know, that, that isn't, it was an interest of mine early on, but I just ended up feeling so helpless, you know, like I was just barking up a tree and there was nothing up there. You know, I just, I don't know. I just felt like I really couldn't change the world becoming a supply side advocate. So I made a pivot, uh, about halfway through my, my journey, uh, just about time when I started this podcast about three years ago to be more on the demand side and bring down the focus to Gen Z. So it's like, is my value add to society, Johnny, to get a 42 year old housewife to quit drinking two bottles of Pinot Grigio? Is that, is that my worth to the world? No, I, 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 I tried that. I didn't work. I don't have the patience. I sucked at it personally. Uh, and so, but 
could I design programs? Could I have initiatives? Could I collaborate with the top people that I know to focus on Gen Z, the next set of alcoholics, the next set of addicts, the next set of people taking their lives? Unfortunately, that's even below Gen Z. Now there's more, I know in the state of Iowa, there's more, was it 10 to 12 year olds going to ER for attempted suicide than, his, than in history? Wow. I mean, 10 to 12, man. What, what I, I just, it keeps me up at night. It really does. It's like, what, what have we done wrong in the most abundant, most connected civilization of all time where our youth are so disconnected? They look in the mirror and they don't see anything looking back. And so that's been my demand side focus. And that's where our startups focusing on. That's where a lot of my, my money's going. It's, I'm putting my money where my mouth is, mm -hmm. you know, with no assurances that it's ever going to pay me back in ROI, but it's giving me purpose. And that's something I'm trying to teach Gen Z is purpose because our app is focused on three things, health, wealth, and purpose. And someone said the other day, wealth, what do you mean? Well, if you think about Gen Z for a second, they're the most financially illiterate generation of all time. Okay. They're set to inherit more money ever in the history of humanity in the next 20, 25 years. So we're giving money to the generation that's the least knowledgeable <laughs> on money. Oh my God. Um, big problem there. And you know what the number one stressor is for old Gen Z, 18 to 26? Financial insecurity. Oh, yeah. That's the number one thing. So, But how many mental health uh, conferences do you go to? How many podcasts do you have? How many uh, live streams do you listen to with all these advocates that anyone talks about money? Dude. And I'm talking about that. I'm talking about your healthy relationship, not making it. TikTok will show you how to drive a Lamborghini. You know, and that's, I'm joking that that's what all the kids are seeing. Everybody else driving yeah. Lamborghinis and buying the Fendi bags. We don't talk to our kids about healthy relationships with money. You can go to the gym and look great. You can go pray to your God, but if you can't make your rent payment, you can't make your car payment. You can't put food on your table. That creates a whole set of anxiety. And so that I think is kind of that, that that area that's just not talked. It's like the elephant in the room. And I want to break down that wall. I want to have these conversations with kids. And fortunately that's my 33 year career is money. Mm -hmm. So I have that lens I can bring to the table. I can't bring the table as a drug addict because I never was one, mm -hmm. you know, I, I wasn't sexually abused. So I can't bring that. I wasn't, I wasn't even abused growing up. I grew up in the leave at the beaver house. So it's like, only thing I can bring to the table are my experiences. I have, I have no designation in, any of this stuff, you know, from a clinical perspective, you know, anyway, I thought I'd just throw that out there. That's one area that I'm very passionate about is the, the education of our kids when it comes to healthy relationships with money. I read a lot of financial psychology stuff, behavioral finance, man. I love it. I watch a lot of videos about that, about uh, consumer psych and how we decide to spend money. And I remember hearing this, this is why I'm really passionate about, yes, mental health, but also the two offshoots of that, that I'm very interested in are our relationship with food and relationship with money, because there are two Love things it. that we have to interact with on a regular yep. basis for survival every day. And I remember hearing an interview with, it was a financial psychologist that was interviewing a therapist or maybe vice versa. I can't remember, uh, but they were having a conversation and the therapist said something like 80% of problems that people come to me with as a therapist could be solved 
if they just managed their, if they made enough money. So some of them literally don't make enough money and some of them don't have enough money left over after what they spend. And some of them are so over saving. So there's overspending Mm -hmm. and then also Mm -hmm. over saving. So people who are saving Mm -hmm. so much money that they are bottlenecking their own quality of life to a degree that now they come to therapy and say, how can I feel better? And I say, buy yourself a sandwich. I have a term for those people. Who are they? Cause I'm one of those. They're called financial hoarders. Oh yeah. And hoarding can be just as detrimental with your money as it can be with possessions. Because what happens is your quantity of life becomes more important than your quality. And so I, I manage the the brains of many, many rich millionaires that were miserable. Yeah. And their family didn't like them, but they, you know, they had the nice car, the house was paid off. They'd done everything correctly financially, but they were a wreck on the other. So the behavioral financial angle, um, Daniel Kahneman is an awesome one that comes to mind. Daniel Crosby's guy has been on my podcast. He's probably the one guy, if you want to read books on behavioral finances, Daniel Crosby, and he's all over LinkedIn, dude, all over. Um, I quoted him in my book. He's been on my podcast twice. I've got three of his books behind me. Um, he's awesome. And he's really taken down the stereotypes of, you know, wall street being this, you know, word salad, intimidating things for people. And the reality is it's all about a healthy relationship with money. That's what it comes down to. So anyway, I just, how I went down that road, I'm not sure either, but, um, it's just, I think, I think we have opportunities, Johnny, as advocates that we can just kind of reinvent what's already out there, make a better mousetrap, you know, do all that stuff. Or we could really figure out what are the things that are not being talked about to our kids that we can then add value with either a new app or website or, you know, whatever you have that, that you want to, whatever um, mode you want to present this to. Um, I think there's a tremendous opportunity. The other thing too, that bodes well to what we're both doing and everybody else that is doing this, um, is Gen Z is the first generation ever of all time to have mental health as their number one New Year's resolution, man. Think about that. Let's go. I mean, that's like, that's like, yeah, that's like, there you go. So they, they are asking us for help by saying it's not fitness. It's not financial security. It's mental health. That's their number one concern. So it's like, all right, adult uh, parents, let's, let's design these things for these kids that the time has come. They have the problems. They're telling us they know. And now the ball's in our court. So that's what that's why I'm so excited about the opportunities out there for what you and I do and all the other tremendous Avengers that are out there every day, you know, trying to think of new ways to help people become more autonomous in their own quality of lives, you know? I love it. I love it. It's an exciting time. I I I, I do. I I'm not a big believer in fate. I, I don't believe in things happen for a reason. I think things happen and then you make a reason. That's been my mindset. So um, again, why I bring that up is that I don't have time to sit around and wait for some magical thing to happen. I don't have time for somebody to come down here and say, Jeff, here's your, here's, I'm just making things up. I, 80% of what I do each day, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Um, I really don't. Um, but it's introducing me to people like you. It's introducing me to people like Ryan Hampton. It's getting me in front of people that can move the needle in some of these issues. And it's like, all right, you made a post the other day. I think it's the best post you ever made. My opinion. I think it was just yesterday. 
Seriously, dude, the one about competition. I, I was like, oh my God, I, you, you've, been, you've been in my brain, man, because this is what I've been trying to do with my projects for three years is to bring people together, get off these damn islands and these self-imposed agendas. And you know, anyone can anoint themselves whatever they want on LinkedIn. You can put whatever title you want behind you. It's like, okay, fine, that's great. But like you said, what are we doing in the trenches every day to save lives, right? Amen. Dude, I'm sorry to cut this short, but I do have to hop. It's uh, four Eastern right now. I'm actually one minute over. Man, that's fast. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, how do people reach you? It is, uh, let's see, probably shouldn't give too much personal info, but the- no, no, I don't mean that. I mean like on LinkedIn and yeah, yeah. stuff so like that. Probably, um, if you go to copenotes.com, you can try copenotes for free. If you want to learn about me, you can go to johnnycrowder.com. Uh, that has my speaking and training stuff. And then I am on LinkedIn quite a bit. And then I also use Instagram. My handle is at Johnny Crowder loves you. All right, man. I'll let you roll. This has been great. Um, certainly want to circle back and have some of these conversations. Okay, man. Heck yes. Thank you for having me, dude. All right. Keep living on a turd brother. Okay. Aye. aye. Take care. Take care.